All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, this week's uh, segment of The Teachers with Dr. Michael Clay K. Blanchard and yours truly, Dr. Rick Wallace. Uh, we're going to have a very abbreviated uh, time here today when we say that, but we know us, but we have, we're going to have a, uh, an abbreviated time. And you know why? Dr. Blanchard is going to be doing most of the talking. So with that out of cut, uh, the showdown by a good 30 minutes anyway. But uh, I know, I know I talk. That's what I do. But we're going we're gonna to have an abbreviated show. And next week's show, we got a special guest on. We're going to end the year with a bang. We'll be the last show for the year. And we'll be back on January 8th to kick this thing off again. Uh, but what we want to talk about uh, now is safety and school safety. Uh, it comes on the heel of another school shooting. Uh, and while the school shootings hardly ever involve uh, anyone who looks like us, uh, because there are usually some specific dynamics that go along with the whole shoot, school shooting narrative, uh, it points to some uh, parallels that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the importance of schools, uh, school safety. Uh, Dr. Blanchard and I actually did a position paper, and I mentioned that, on school safety and protocols and the money being spent. Uh, it's become an industry because shoot, school shootings have become so prevalent that now it's a billion dollar a year industry where money is being spent on quote unquote uh, security. But we're finding that it's not safe. Number one is they're popping that stuff in norm as a general rule in schools where the likelihood of a school shooting taking place isn't that likely. But uh, Dr. Blanchard is going to elaborate all on, on that and we're going to get to it. But we're also going to sort of talk about something that has been really heavy on my mind because it came across my desk. And that is the shooting of two 14-year-old black kids uh, during this week. One 14-year-old black male in Philadelphia was sitting at the bus stop on the way home from uh, school and was shot 18 times, shot at a total of 36 times, hit 18 times as he was try, trying to flee from the shooters. Uh, a 14-year-old girl in Georgia uh, was shot and what uh, was initially dubbed a home invasion, but we come to find out that her 13-year-old brother was illegally making uh, uh, semi-automatic firearms, AR-15s and, uh, and the such uh, at home and selling them on the street. They're called ghost guns because you build them from scratch, so there's no uh, way to track them or trace them uh, with serial numbers and things of that nature. So uh he ends up shooting at two guys who were trying to rob him once they realized he was only 13 and hit his sister uh so we're going to talk about the the rise in violence the peak in violence in the in the communities but also in the school and dr blanche is going to talk about the importance of wraparound services and also other important uh elements and components that lead to it and we're going to start off with the school shooting so dr blanchard uh this is your area you're actually employed by a school district to help improve situations like yeah. that. Yeah, I'm in South Florida, and uh, I have uh, several schools in South Florida that I'm over. And, uh, you know, we, we've wrapped so much money up in infrastructure and, 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 um, and personnel. Um, and I think that we, we, we need to maybe pause and take a look at the return on that investment. And that's, you know, when you and I wrote that article, 
that's what we were kind of looking at. You know, we were, we're spending $6 billion annually on school um, security, and most of it is in infrastructure. Um, but we also know that whether uh, it's a, it's a uh, high socioeconomic family or a low socioeconomic family, the key component is socialization, which is something that um, we've been talking about probably the last three or four shows we've talked about socialization, you know, um, teaching kids how to process information and, and work through problems and, and, and uh, conflict resolution and all those type of things. And it, it, it may be time, Doc, for us to actually have an actual curriculum in the school. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but, um, you know, normally uh, outside persons like yourself to provide those services, it's, it's kind of hard for us to get into some of these school districts, um, but it may be time for us to push uh, uh, the curriculum uh, from K through 12, um, you know, in lieu of us having our own schools. I mean, in a perfect world, we would we would socialize our own kids. But um, until we can get to that point, I don't know what you think about it, but it may be a time for us to make that push where it becomes part of the curriculum. It's no longer an after school program or, or uh, something else. It becomes part of the main curriculum. Well, I, I definitely think that it has to be a part of uh, developmental curriculum uh, for our children is socialization. Socialization is so much a part of their development and preparation to be functional and effective in life in later years that it has to be. Now, again, the goal is to socialize our own kids. Uh, but when so much of our children's time is spent within the classroom of a European system that is ranked somewhere below 12th, uh, on a global scale as far as effectiveness um it's it's a failing system that was never designed for them that doesn't take into consideration uh their cultural nuances and realities uh their backgrounds and outcomes that's forcing them to move into a standardized atmosphere and perform so obviously uh if we're going to socialize them and, I, and I, i've talked about this uh on a grand scale um in lectures, I've written in it, it's, it's written in at least four of my books, that if we can find a way to effectively socialize our kid, we protect our community as well. We don't just protect our boys, we protect our communities because uh, the numbers show that when you properly socialize young black boys, they uh, the risk of uh, them committing violence drops drastically. The, the risk of them going to prison drops drastically. And so those are things that negatively impact the community, uh, not just in the sense of safety, but also in the sense of being able to become more economically viable. When you lose men, you lose income. You lose the ability to build and start wealth. You lose the protection that's supposed to be in the, in the community. So uh, that's a big issue. Uh, the proclivity towards violence is directly impacted by socialization. And unfortunately, when you leave it to the school system, they're not doing it. And so there has to be a specific curriculum in place. Uh, we use a rite of passage curriculum uh, that has proven highly effective. In fact, the highest performers in the world uh, bring their boys up on rites of passage. You start with the bar mitzvah. With The, the Jews are uh, income-wise and economic-wise the highest performers on the planet. And they have a protocol. It's real simple. Every boy is raised up the same. No matter what type of Jew you talk to, Hasidic, uh, you know, traditional, uh, whatever uh, type of Judaism they practice, 
the universal uh, rite of passage is the same. Oh, absolutely. They all share the same lineage and culture and lived experiences. Right. And I think that's a big part of um, where the public schools and private schools are missing, missing the mark, because we want to do a cookie cutter for everybody and everybody's the same. You know, we're all just human beings. But, yeah, that's true. But, you know, at the same time, we have different lineages and cultures and and lived experience and upbringing and, and, and who better to teach us than our own, you know? That, that where you don't have to, you know, you know this by going through education. It's very difficult when you have to uh, first get uh, a person who doesn't share your culture to get them to understand where you're coming from. Right. When we're taught by our own, we don't have to go through that. Right. We already oh. get it. And some, and like, some of the people outside our culture that are teachers, unfortunately, they will never get it. Right. They will never it, get it. And, and that's why right now today, when you start talking about black males in school, and we're going to get back to the school shooting, but you were going somewhere. So we want to touch on that yeah. uh, right now. Uh, the predominance of black males are in school and their greatest advocate because of the af the absence of black men in the roles of teacher, Absolutely. which is, is diminishing even more. It's hard to find black men in a teacher role in any uh, consistency and volume. That's so true. the greatest advocate for a black male in a, uh, in public school is the black woman, which is not still not the most ideal situation because while she understands blackness and what he's going through from a cultural perspective, she can't understand it from a gender role perspective. And so it's still, but that's his greatest advocacy. His greatest threat is the middle-aged white woman who makes up 75% of the teaching demographic who right. doesn't understand him at all and wants him to behave as if she, he comes from her background. Absolutely. Okay, so, and, and and here's the thing. This is again why we must uh, develop and push an effort to uh, properly socialize our black males because eventually you're not going to live in a cocoon. Even if we take our kids and we homeschool and we socialize them all together, eventually we're going to have to release them into a society that's diverse culturally, diverse racially, and we, they're going to have to be able to mix in and function. But you don't release them into that culture until you've socialized them. Why? Because they will tend to develop identities and aspirations based off the cultural norm. And the cultural norm out in that world isn't going to serve them well because it's designed for someone other than them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, they talk about that be you adopting a foreign culture. Mm hmm. Where you're, where you're not yourself. So, but um, back to the school shooting, we talked about the uh, Oxford, Michigan shooting. Right. And uh, with the with the young man who there were so many red flags and most, most schools, I tell you, probably Florida has the best, what I would call behavioral threat assessment. Um, and even that could be actually better. But um, in, in Michigan, they, they really missed a lot of the marks. You know the case a lot better than I do, but you know, there were a lot of uh, things that were missed, even by students that, uh, you know, could have actually reported. A teacher could have reported it um, down here in South Florida. We have online reporting where someone can, you know, there are apps that, that kids have if they're being bullied or, you know, anything they can. You know, it's so easy to uh, to have something investigated. And uh, even well, you know, this even the police departments, they have their uh, uh, IP uh, readers where they can check the IPs of, of social media threats and all of that. And so uh, in school security right now, 
the schools and the police, they're, they're so busy chasing these social media threats, you know? And, uh, you know, I don't know that, that, that that's the best uh, model. You know, I think that, as we talked about before, we got to have some socialization curriculum in the schools. And I know that might sound weird, someone like me saying that from a police standpoint, but, you know, we've looked at what militarization does in our communities. If we can't, if, if police can't stop crime and violence in the neighborhood with, with uh, millions and billions of dollars, what makes us think that uh, throwing millions and millions and billions of dollars at, at school security personnel and infrastructure can stop it. You know, it, it's not, we, we, we got to look at some other things because we're continuing to go down the same road and every dollar that we spend, look at that $6 billion right there. You know, what about, uh, attracting teachers? We talked about how we need more teachers in the, in, in the K through 12 and many of them are going to be retiring and how can we attract the best teachers, uh, including, uh, uh, pe- you know, African-Americans, and African descent people if we don't pay them a decent wage. So there's a lot involved in this whole thing. When we talk about $6 billion, it's, it's taking away from the curriculum. It's taking away from instructional, um, you know, the instructional uh, finances, you know, right. The budget for, for instructional is taken away from that. Right. And I think what we have to look at here is the fact that there's this cyclical, cascading impact we don't pay teachers enough we're already operating in a subpar system a public education system if you're honest about it the entire system isn't designed to get the optimal out of the kids because it's not designed to look into each kid and determine the genius within the kid it is to create a skilled based on academic skills a skilled person who can be plugged into a labor system at some point with their particular skill set and that's how they're going to make their living. They're going to live their entire life, probably never really fulfilling their genius and fulfilling who they are in totality. So that's a problem at first. But but foremost, here's what happens when you take a kid who hasn't been properly socialized and you plug them into that system, then that system starts to stretch them, mold them, push them. And they either do one or two things. They become completely alienated by, by the system because they don't feel it. They don't fit in or they start to become highly compliant and acquiesce it to the system so that it does feel comfortable and it does and they are accepted by it. The problem with being accepted in the system is that again, in order to be accepted, you have to release who you truly are. And and then when we don't socialize these young boys, they can be given an identity that we start to see now, a bunch of identity crisis in our men who don't know who they are, are questioning their manhood, are not portraying true masculinity and so many other things that are a problem. So, but here's the second phase of a very of, of, of that same cyclical process, and that is because we are not making it uh, a priority to hire quality teachers, especially teachers that are representative of the demographic. So, if if black boys make up eleven percent of the student population, black male teachers should make up eleven percent of the population at the very minimum. Uh, So that there is a black male presence at every school where there are black males so that that modeling of black manhood, which is different than any form of uh, any other form of manhood, is present for them to observe. That is first and foremost. Here's the problem, though. When you commodify the black man, which is a totally different issue, it seems, but it's not. 
when you commodify the black man, the black man starts looking for where the money is at because that's how he's judged. So it may be his passion to teach boys, but but that doesn't pay well enough for him to be respected in the community. Nobody's respecting black teachers on a general level because their income doesn't demand respect. The black man gets his best respect by what he drives, the, the suit he wears and where he lives. And so that's what he's shooting for. So the exceptional minds in our community aren't looking to be teachers. They're looking to be lawyers. They're looking to be doctors. And nothing wrong with those professionals. But who's going to train our kids and prepare them to get there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a problem with that. And so what we have to understand is there's this thing that has us in this cocoon of perception of who we are. And as long as we're acquiescing to the idea that I'm measured by my money, teaching is never going to lure us at $40,000 a year. You know, what's interesting is uh, I was reading uh, uh, an article on what, what we're talking about as far as um, the recruitment of teachers. And 30 years ago, when you and I were in college and undergrad, um, about 24% of all degrees were educational degrees. Mm-hmm. You know what it is now? I'm scared to ask. 6%. Only 6% of the degrees. 6% of degrees. 6% 6 of people are going to get educational degrees. That speaks volumes. Yeah, absolutely. I was shocked. I mean, not really, but it's really bad now because most of the school system, Doc, they they can't even get subs. Um. As I keep saying, the, the teaching population is aging. Um, so uh, most of our teachers are, you know, your 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 age and, and, and above our age and up. And, uh, you know, there's also can be a lack, there can be a lack of connection, you know, because of that age. That age can be age thing can be a barrier if you don't educate yourself and stay up on what's going on in the world. Right. Uh, it, it's hard to connect. And th- that's the thing. Uh, Armia Benton, uh, they've got a, a, a hell of a conversation going on in the chat, Doc. Uh, okay. I mean, almost when we came on, she came on and she said, good morning. My little sister was stabbed with a pair of sisters at school yesterday. Wow. The school sided with the other student saying he's Spanish, so he doesn't understand what he's doing. Now, her sister is, it comes out later in the dialogue uh, between her and uh, Darlene that her sister is 11 years old. Wow. So 11. And, you know, I had a, a potential client who came to me, black mother, uh, earlier in the week, five-year-old son, already being labeled uh, as, the you know, they're, they're ready to start giving him labels and start. In- incorrigible. Yeah. Uh oppositionally defiant, ADHD, all these things they push them to that ultimately ends up in many cases with them uh, being uh, sent to a school psychiatrist where they'll be uh, diagnosed with ADHD, or oppositional defiant disorder or bipolarism, and then put on psychotropic drugs like Adderall, Adderall, all those things. And then that's to make them docile and controllable. And the truth is we never look at the cultural elements and components and the truth about natural development of any kid, regardless of race. The natural way of learning for a five-year-old isn't to sit still in a desk and face forward and listen for an hour. That's not how they learn. They learn through exploration. They learn through moving around. They learn through rhythmic exercises. That's why you have kids when we were growing up singing all the time. 
That's how they learn. You get them moving. You're, you're not trying to hold them still. But what happens is you got a bunch of teachers who are frustrated. And if we're going to be honest with it, this is what they don't want to miss. But I've done enough research to tell you that that white middle age, the, the, the middle aged white woman demographic that makes up the vast majority of the teaching population is literally scared of our five year old boys. Mm. I mean, to the point where he he being in her room makes her uncomfortable. He's five. Right. So it's like, boy, if you don't sit your behind down somewhere to her, it's like, oh, my God. And, you know, she doesn't know what to do with him. And so the discomfort that he creates for her is easily, easily eliminated if I can find a way to get him IEP'd and out of here. Right. And so that happens. And I wrote a whole dis a whole position paper on the disproportionality of special education referrals for African-American boys. And a bunch of it is cultural uh, ignorance, the lack of cultural diversity training for non-black teachers. Uh, the, the the fact that we don't have specialized programs outside of IEPs that label the kid. We don't have specialized programs designed to reach into the to the uniqueness of each student and say, this is how you learn. Yeah. Boy, you're sharp here. We're directing a bunch of kids towards a way of learning that they don't excel at. And we are saying that they are learning disabled when they actually learn a different way. And their genius is on the other side of what you're doing. And those are problems that we're going to have to address in our community if we're going to create boys. And I want to double back to the school shooting. Again, you, you, you've written about wraparound services. Matter of fact, your dissertation was on wraparound services. Uh, we talked uh, incessantly about the importance of wraparound services, not just in a situation where you're talking about a white kid, but the wraparound services would have stopped that. Yeah, it would have made us aware of a situation. We could have got the resources. We could have dealt with the things that were driving him and right. uh, causing. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be proactive. I don't know if you remember. Uh, I, I told you when I first got down here in 2019, I was doing some hiring. I was hiring a, a, a Broward uh, County, a retired Broward County Sheriff, uh, for school security and. I had to do a reference check on him from a previous employer. So I'm talking to his uh, major from the sheriff's department, gentleman by the name of Major Nestor. This was in 2019. And somehow we got on the topic of wraparound services. And he said to me point blankly over the phone, he said, you know, if the HOTS program would have been around, uh, in 2011, this is when the Parkland shootings happened. He said, we would have caught that gentleman before he uh, did that. And I said, well, how so? He said, well, we had the HOTS program. It was called the uh, Habitual Offender Tra uh, uh, Tracking Program, acronym HOTS. And what they did was they identified children and families in need of services. And what they did, they were proactive. So they would come to the schools and talk with administration and teachers and everybody and say, hey, who are your top 10 kids? Who are the top 10 kids that have, you know, economic economic issues at home or mental health issues at home or or maybe mom or dad needs a job? You know, any of those things. And they dealt with the underlying problem because anytime, you know, you've talked about this extensively. Anytime a kid is acting out of school, whatever the, the, the behavior is. It's it's definitely something going on at home. You can track track it back home and right. and, and assess it there and deal with it there. 
And so uh, the HOTS program is something that 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 uh, I feel uh, could be adaptive, adaptable in, in wraparound services because we got to be proactive. We can't wait until someone gives us a tip, you know, because after we get the tip, it, it's, it, it may be almost over by then, you know. Right. And again, the key word is proactive. And, 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 and you could talk about prevention. You could talk about proactivity. But I think that a part of this whole infrastructure is we're going to have somebody in place if something happens. Well, the truth of the matter is we've proven uh, with the Parkland shooting specifically that having an officer on, on site doesn't necessarily mean that kids are safe. The officer's outside hiding and the kids are in the school getting shot. OK, so you, 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 those are things you're, you're expecting someone in many instances who's never been in a hostile situation. Uh, to respond correctly in in the way that's going to save lives, uh, that com- that comes from a, a couple of different things: being highly trained and prepared, or someone just instinctively does it, and you can't dictate or predict that. So, what do you want to do? You want to be preventative. You want to look at what leads to these types of incidences. Mm-hmm. How can you get to a point that it never ever happens? Mm-hmm. And it can you can you can do that. If nothing else, you reduce the frequency. I remember how shocked everybody was about Columbine. Right. Nobody gets that shocked about school shootings anymore. No, no, they don't. Because they've become a thing. They've become frequent. It's become a way of kids expressing their absolute frustration and discontent with, quote, unquote, if you want to end it up at the end of the day, if you go back and you look at each and every kid, they felt they weren't heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't me justifying what little dude did, not at all. But uh, that was just a perfect storm, unfortunately. That was ignorant parents that armed a troubled kid. Yeah. And then ignored all the signs. Back called to school, shown a picture of him drawing death and saying he doesn't want to do it, but he's going to have to. But something like that. I can't remember. the. I watched the press conference, but the, the picture was just if, if I saw the picture, dude would have to get out of school. Then he would have got searched right. and he could not be in the school. Right. Come get him. He's at the front gate. Standing, go, being held at guard. Mm-hmm. Get him some help. And we're going to have to talk to his psychiatrist before right. we will accept him back in the school. That picture that was described was that troubling to yeah. me as a person who's in mental health and human behavior. Yeah. The teacher takes a picture of it, shows it to the principal. Principal calls him down, keeps him in the office, calls his parents. They come in. Only thing is established is he needs to be enrolled in a psycho uh, a psychotherapy course within 48 hours. And then without checking his backpack, which is really important for his parents, but it should have been insisted upon by the school, but it should have been definitely something done by the parent. Even if they said, if you mind, do we take him out to the car for a minute mm-hmm. and say, hey, Ethan, do you have that gun in your backpack? Let me see your backpack. Make you know, sure. I, you know, that's why I said earlier that um, their behavioral threat assessment policy I'm wondering if they even have one. Remember, that's a that's a uh, suburb of Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's funny because in most of the uh, inner city schools and most of the larger schools, you know, in the top 10 larger schools, 
Los Angeles, you know, Miami, West Palm, Broward down here where I'm at. Um, they tend to have very um, organized behavioral threat assessment uh, policies, and they even have a behavioral threat assessment team. This situation right here, you know, just basically how the administrative administration acted, seems like they didn't have a behavioral threat assessment right. policy or team. And if right. they did, it broke down. But, you know, right. right. What, what, what I'm sensing is the same thing you're sensing in, in that it doesn't seem to have been any behavioral threat assessment protocols in place mm -hmm. uh, that would have automatically detected and set the course of action. What would have happened to make sure that the school remained safe? I saw a similar situation where a girl lost her life in college. Now, it wasn't from a school shooting, but it was from a threat on site where a non student was on campus that she had dated and was consistently on campus, stalking her, threatening her, intimidating her. And she went through all the protocols of alerting the police to the point she didn't feel satisfied with the campus police. So she called the, the city police in Salt Lake City. It was the University of Utah, Salt Lake City. And they told her, because it's happening on campus, you have to report it to the campus police. Well, that's a police department with a force of 30. And they're used to dealing with uh, property damage, uh, alcoholism, DUIs, and stuff like that. That's what they get most of the time. Kids misbehaving. So now you got a, a, a life-threatening situation. They had no protocols in place. Nobody knew what to do, and they kept making light of it until he killed her. And it's the same thing. When you don't have those protocols in place, and see, what it was is they weren't up with the times. You know, there was no training on intimate partner violence, domestic violence. That wasn't part of the police tra police training and protocols. They weren't used to dealing with that. So they didn't know they didn't have any protocols in place. So, again, you're talking about a suburb, uh, a suburban school district that probably doesn't have a lot of common threat. That's not what they're dealing with. Kids acting out, kids skipping, kids smoking marijuana, things of that nature. Uh, Look like we may have lost Dot for a minute. He was having signals, uh, signal problems. But anyway, that seemed to have been the problem with that uh, situation. Uh, hopefully, he'll he'll get back in. Okay, so in essence, what we have to do is in in the paper that Doc and I wrote. One of the things that you have to look at is the schools spend a lot of money on armed resource, uh, uh, armed resource officers. The problem with that is most of those are in schools where there's not likely to be a quote unquote school shooting or a mass shooting. Uh, we're dealing with more one-on-one -on -one violence in our schools, and so we need threat assessments that address that. Uh, we go to Philly. Uh, we go to Philly, and this week, a 14-year-old sitting at a bus stop waiting to go home after school was shot 18 times, shot at 36 times, hit 18 times while trying to flee the shooters. And I can almost tell you, I can almost tell you that the kid that got shot in Philly uh was shot by somebody uh under the age of 21. uh they pulled up on him 14 years old shot 
at 36 times, hit 18 times while trying to flee the shooter. Uh, you know, you can make a bunch of a bunch of assumptions. The first assumption would automatically be it seems gang related, but it could be something as simple as the problem is when you have a city that's struggling with gang issues, it doesn't require that both parties be a part of a gang. And even if both parties are, it still uh, illuminates the question is, why are we having such an issue with gangs? Why aren't we involved? Why are we so distant and aloof? Why are 14 year olds wreaking havoc on our communities? You got to ask yourself that. OK, but you, you you also have to give benefit of the doubt. I don't know the story. Maybe somebody else does know the complete story. Um, I haven't been able to see anything that I've researched that says he was a part of a gang. He was coming home from school. Um, you know, you know, obviously his mom is going to say he's a good kid, that all moms think their kids are good kids. Right. Uh, but what you have to understand is he was shot with such viciousness. Oh, yeah. Such, yeah. such malintent. That that came from a young kid. No 30-something-year-old man shot a 14-year-old kid like that. You know, uh, when we get in our 30s, generally, when we come to a point of her harming somebody, it's a whole different mindset, and it's not like that. That's that's a sign of kids who have become totally desensitized to death. Absolutely. You know, that's a gaming culture that desensitizes death and killing. That is, we're in an environment where gang violence is being praised and promoted in our uh, music and in the films and in video you can uh you can go on your device and find plenty of violence and the more you experience violence the more you watch violence the more desensitized you become to it it becomes it starts to become a part of your social norm again the importance of socializing young black males if you don't socialize a kid into the value of his own life how much life uh, how much do you think he's? How much value do you think he's going to give to someone else's? Absolutely, right. So you have to sit up and you have to uh, socialize the value of life in, in in first in respect to him. You're too important to this world to do stupid stuff that gets you taken away from it. You have a place in this world. The world needs you. There are some things you're going to do in this world that only you can do. There's got to be a way that he understands that that this community needs you. Your family needs you. Eventually, you're going to meet a beautiful young woman, and she's going to need you. Your kids are going to need you. But they need you to be everything that you can possibly be. They don't need you to be a person that puts them in jeopardy by your very presence. They need you to be a person that they can depend on. And the way you do that and the way you thrive and the way you advance it, because here's, one day, it's almost certain that as a black man, you're going to have kids. And they're going to live in the world you created. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be in the mindset. That's why I work so hard, because my kids are walking around in a world I created and I'm not happy with it. Now, I didn't I didn't do a lot of the bad things, but I haven't I don't feel I've made enough impact to make it a better place. Mm -hmm. So I live every day to make it a better place because my grandkids are going to be born in it eventually. So I'm on my sons. I'm on my daughters because I want them to have behaviors that are conducive to creating a better environment for my grandkids. But you've got to start early in socializing them. Absolutely. Now we have a kid dead down in Georgia. You got a 14 year old girl whose brother, who was 13, is making illegal weapons in the house, ordering pieces offline and building guns and selling them on the street. Right. Somebody comes over to buy one of the guns, realize they've been dealing with a 13 year old and decides they taking all his stuff. But he wasn't having it. So he's shooting at them and shoots his sister. Mm hmm. 
Mother doesn't want what's going on in the house to come out. So instead of calling 911 and having them come to the house and leave her there and apply pressure, Doc, as a police officer, you, you have to know at least the minimal amount of uh, life-saving measures and techniques. You're training that. Well, you know, when you have a shooting victim, you want to apply pressure to slow the bleeding and make sure that they are breathing, make sure, you know, everything like that. And we, I mean, even, even if they're not breathing, what we understand, if it's a gunshot wound and it's actually bleeding, you don't necessarily want chest compressions. Why? Because that's going to speed up the what? The bleeding. So you those are some things you understand, but you understand that if I've got a shooting victim, I don't want to drag them out, throw them in a car, move them around and drive them. Number one is they're afraid. So their heart rate is automatically speeding up. The more their heart rate speeds up, the more they bleed, then they go into shock. Well, the thing is, what's crazy, and I don't know if a DA is actually going to take this up, but I can see the mother in some way being in trouble because you're supposed to know what's going on in your home. Your kids got a gun factory in your house. And obviously you knew it because you risked your daughter's life to protect it because there's no way you don't call 911 unless you don't want them coming to your house. Because the time that you're rushing to the house, that's an entire time she's not getting medical care. You call them, they're at the house. Let's say it takes five minutes to get there. That From that five-minute point, she's getting at least some type of professional medical care to mitigate the damage and hopefully save her life that she never got that chance right, right. because you took her away. But my thing is, in what way are we failing our kids that you got a 13-year-old building guns in the house? Right, right. Now, I grew up in a house where there were guns. And at the age of six, I was trained uh, extensively on how to use them. But I was also taught the importance of gun safety and that that wasn't a toy and that you don't expose anyone else and you don't allow anyone else in our house because we have these guns. There was never an incident with a gun. Right, right. Nobody ever got accidentally shot because or, you know, somebody sit up and said, man, they got all them guns. We're going to because I brought them in and showed them what they didn't supposed to see in the first place. It was just an understanding what that's a part of socialization. These things have a purpose. They're not in here. They're not toys. We either use them to hunt or we use them to defend. But you know what? It's interesting that uh, when we're talking about socialization, you know, if you do a literature review on student persistence or student growth, uh, professional development, anything, socialization comes up probably the most. And so it's interesting that socialization is, is what's missing, you know? Socialization right. and and also um, looking at the mental health aspect. You know, we're expecting teachers who are not trained to deal with mental health or trained to deal with developmentally disabled students. Everyone's in the same class right now. Right. So, as, as we talked about earlier, uh, you know, they're they're dealing with so much redirection that even sometimes they might not even see because they have so many kids in class. They may not see a problem kid simply because right. the classroom size is too big. You right. know, it's, it's to the point now where, like I said, they can't get, they can't, not only can we not hire teachers, we can't um, hire subs. And uh, there are days when there aren't enough, uh, and this is across the country I'm hearing uh, from other educators, that there are days that go by where there aren't enough subs or teachers to even teach the class. So they 
move all the kids either to the gym or the cafeteria and put the laptop in front of them, do your work. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's no, there's no, there's no, uh, 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 lecture or, or anything, you know, it's just, you know, uh, we're, we're in bad situation. Nobody's really even talking about it. You know, we're going to look up one day and, uh, we're not going to hardly have any decent teachers. You know, we're getting to that point now, but it's, 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 it's a, it's a big problem, but you don't hear anybody really even talking about, you know, uh, the lack of uh, quality teachers and, and actually, you know, um, you know, trying to bridge that gap between this generation and the next generation of teachers. Like I said, only 6% of uh the student population is graduating with uh educational degrees so right and again that's going to consistently be an, uh that's going to be an ongoing problem uh because again until we value those who prepare our children at a level that they need to be valued and in, in positioned in this world you're not going to get the results you get so again i go back to your best educator will be your parent. Why? Because your parent has an invested interest in you being successful. Your parent has an invested interest in you being completely and holistic and holistically prepared and empowered. Your, your parent isn't doing it for a paycheck. Your parent is doing it from a position of love and and parental obligation that that, that is driven by something that is different. And so what we've got to get an understanding of long before a child walks into a classroom, they need to be prepared. One of the things we got when we had Sister Latava on was an understanding of how much she socialized her children and prepared her children for a world in, 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 in a sense that it, it, it seemed extreme. Uh, you know, and she talked and I, I, I laugh and I talk about that with people now. What she talked about the fact that her oldest daughter, she remembers clearly the first time her oldest daughter saw a white person. Mm -hmm. And she was old enough to articulate that that was different to her. So it wasn't at one or two or three years old. She literally kept her in a place where she didn't experience anything that wasn't for her or that wasn't going to. She was never going to be exposed to anything that was going to speak negative of her or give her a ne negative image of herself. And, and we don't isolate our kids enough. We expose them to harsh realities. And nothing is more harsh than what you expose your kids to when your kid's device is rearing them. Because what's coming on that device isn't sculpted around building a powerful, strong self-image, self-concept, self-esteem, and self-confidence. It's about setting an idea of what is that your kid probably does not fit into. Why? Because the system that's creating it isn't doesn't look like us. The people who are creating it in this system doesn't look like us. They're creating it to benefit themselves. They're creating it in many instances to perpetuate a narrative. And the narrative is superiority over inferiority. When the truth of the matter is you're exceptional. But if all you've ever seen was somebody pointing out ways that you appear to be inferior, you start to buy into the notion. Why? I wasn't socialized to believe I was powerful. I wasn't socialized to believe I was strong. I wasn't socialized to believe I was beautiful. There's a reason, Doc, that uh, black children between the ages of five and 11 now lead in suicide. Absolutely, yeah. And it's a lot, predominantly young girls. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they're being made fun of at school. 
because yeah. they're in environments, in most instances, they're in schools where there's a diversity. And then they are looking at how they don't fit in, how they don't look. And we've never ta taught our kids the power and the beauty of creating their own space. Everybody wants to be accepted. The, our kids have learned to uh, uh, equate acceptance to love. Mm. When I'm rejected, it's because you hate me. No, we, we probably just don't fit. There's nothing wrong with someone saying, you're not for me. I don't want you hanging with me. You got to be good enough to love yourself, to find the people who are drawn to you and who will love you. A lot of times you can hate yourself so much, nobody wants to be around you. <laughs> and so, but are we training our kids to love themselves? Are we training our kids to see the genius in themselves? Nobody is going to see the genius in you like mom. Nobody is going to see the exceptional nature in you like that. Mom is going to say, oh my God, because mom is normally going to be the one around you the most when you're at your youngest. Dad is going to get to see you as you start to walk into yourself. He's going to start spending more time around you because you're going to demand it. I'm coming with you. I'm coming with, you know, and I remember those days. I want to go. I want to go. And so now, you know, hey, this boy can do it. Hey, come here. Let me see you do this. Do this. Man. Do you? And so you're going to see dad get excited about who you are. But then dad is also, if you're a young boy, he's going to take you and say, okay, what's your, what's about to happen? This is what's, this is where a lot of our violence is coming in. We're not socializing them starting at three and four years old on up till 12 and 13 when we have a rite of passage ceremony. It says now you're transitioning into young manhood. And so now you're going to take on responsibilities gradually. But here's another thing you don't see. You don't see young, you don't see fathers escorting their young boys into puberty. One of the most challenging and confusing times of their lives, they're having to navigate it on their own or try to have a mom who never experienced it tell them what's going on. All right. See, what happens in puberty for the boy is different what happens in the puberty for the girl, obviously. But in puberty for the boy, some things happen that need to be explained by a man because they're so uh, connected to their identity. Okay, when you have a boy, he's moving into puberty. What's a couple, couple of things happen? I'm starting to outgrow my female counterparts. Up until this point, we've been pretty much the same size, same strength. You know, we race. You raised girls back when you before you went through puberty. It was pretty much an even race. Start going through puberty, things start change. I'm getting bigger. I'm getting stronger. I'm even becoming a little bit more aggressive. That's why testosterone levels are going up. One of the things that comes with testosterone level is growth, strength, and aggression. Well, if I don't know what it's for, I can easily misapply it. But if I know what it's for, I'm more likely to use it for what it's for. What is it for, dad? Son, you're about to go through a process where your voice is going to get deeper. You're going to become more muscular than your sister. You're going to become bigger and stronger, and you're going to have this little edge on you. That's designed for you to protect your sister. You are now stronger than her physically. You're now her protector. She may be older than you, but you're now bigger than her. And we have that in our house. Now, the youngest kid in the house is bigger than all the other kids in the house because the other kids in the house are girls. And so you have to understand. That's why we, when you were little and they were a lot bigger than you and you were running around and pop them, we wouldn't let you pop them. 
And we kept telling you, even though you're a little kid, boys don't hit girls. Why? Because one day you were going to be bigger than them. And we didn't want that habit. So we don't, boys don't hit girls. Boys don't, boys protect girls. Boys defend girls. That's what we do. So you teach them this aggression that you're experiencing now is meant for you to be willing to fight if you have to, to defend her, to defend your position, the things you care about. That may be your house, that may be your mom and your dad, that may be your siblings, that may be your female friends or male friends, but it's there for a defense mechanism. It's not there for aggression to go out and fight and harm and hurt other people who you should be connecting and growing closer to in community and development and friendship and in love. You have to show them that only those who mean you harm should ever feel your aggression. It's not a way to control people. It's not a way to make people act the way you want them. That's why we don't we didn't make it a habit of hitting our kids when they didn't do what, they, what we wanted them to do. Because when you hit a kid, you train them that when I don't get what I want, I hit. Every time I didn't do what dad told me to do, he popped the hell out of me. Well, when somebody doesn't do what I want to do, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to fire off and hit them. That's what I was taught. Guess where that comes from? Slavery. Mm. That's what we picked it up. Master said, do it, didn't do it, or you didn't do it fast enough, you got hit. Right. So you start training, and, and then everybody wants to experience power too. Master has power over me. Who can I have power over? Little innocent kid can't fight back. Right. So, you know, and then also you want them to stay out of trouble because you don't want them to get in master's ire. So when you see them doing something stupid, you put them hands on them and get over here and sit down. But we didn't realize we were training them to be violent. Right. We didn't realize they have no coping skill, no de-escalation skills, no problem solving skills. It's immediately you take me off. I'm fighting. Then it went from fighting to, well, we can't have fights the way we used to. We used to have fights and did back on the basketball court playing, maybe even on the same team. Mm -hmm. We were used to be able to do that, have a fight. And if nothing else, the next day, Back in the classroom like it never happened. Yep. Now you have a fight and they carry the feelings. Like, I mean, they boys now carry grudges longer than women. <laughs> so now because of this false, I mean, this erroneous way of socializing, you got cats that can't get past you whooped me last week. So now he landed in the cut. You can't feel comfortable. Now, because he's plotting on you. So now the whole thing is now, if I got to go on fight, I might as well just kill you. Now, I'm going to eventually do it. Right. And so now that's the mindset of these kids. I know because I deal with them. This is what I do. I'm dealing with it. So we now have to find a way to de-escalate. We have to now find a, you know how you stop kids from killing kids? You show them the value of your life. You know what? If you kill him, do you think his family just going to let you ride? Do you think his boys going to sit up and say, okay, you got him? So the moment you kill somebody, now you got an X on the back the rest of your life. Right. So is that what you want? Is that, it, it, but the only way that for that to matter, because trust me, I've been there. Mm -hmm. As an A student, I was a kid that did not care. Mm -hmm. I was a totally different kid in the hood than I was in the classroom. Not because I wanted to be, but I wasn't going to be messed with. So I had zero tolerance. And when if I came, I came with everything I had. I was a problem. I wasn't going to join a game because I wasn't fit to get in trouble for nobody else's stupidity. Right. So whatever's going to happen to me is going to be because Rick did it. But what I realized is what happened. This is what happened to me. Up until that point, I would bring it. It didn't matter. And that was the thing. People knew. 
So if we're gonna come at dude, we better come correct and ready to put 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 in work. Right. <laughs> Had my first child and realized my child needed me. My value didn't even come from me caring enough about myself. It came about me caring enough about that kid that that kid wasn't going to grow up without a father. Right. Changed my a whole bunch of people started making it. Because I grew up with a grandfather in the house that told me, mm-hmm. we don't do spit boxing in this house. Somebody step to you, you touch him. Don't I, I catch you doing this, you're gonna fight me. That was my grandfather. He told me we don't spit box. Somebody come at you and get aggressive, you let them know where you stand by putting something on them and letting them know what the consequence is. But then again, that was back when you could fight and then right. come back the next day and say, What's right. up? You know, the kid that I had to fight with that 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 conversation was wrapped around, we're still tight today. But it had to happen. He was the neighborhood bully. And I became, I, it was my turn to be his target. And my dad said, he ain't doing that at this house. Mm-hmm. So you go back out that house and you go handle business. It, it doesn't even matter if you lose. Just bring him everything you got. He ain't going to want it again. Mm-hmm. Never had a problem again. But he taught me not, but that put a mindset in my head. So then I got like, if you come at me, I ain't trying to go the long way around it. We fit in the box. And that was the way it was. But what happened is that boxing came with what came afterwards. Everybody wasn't ready to take that that whooping. Like DMX said, what you think I'm going to do? I'm going to dust you. If you can't take that ass whooping, I'm going to bust you. And that's what it came. So what happened? The baby was born. All of a sudden, my life was more important than proving to some cat who I was. My life was more important than that. And then I just, then I start to see me. Dude, you got something to give the world, and you up here about to throw it away. That's why when I can sit up to say, when you hear me say, uh, Dr. King says, if a man doesn't have something for which he's willing to die, he's not fit to lose. Absolutely. And you hear me say, I have no problem. I was willing to die for stupid stuff back then, Doc. The stuff I'm willing to die for now, that's a part of my legacy. If I die for it now, I live on. Right. That's the difference. I'm going to leave it on you. Yeah, man. We got a. We got to get to the point, man, where we start either organizing on a national basis, man, for some type of national rites of passage to socialize our young people. Um, You know, it's probably not coming from the school system. We're going to have to step in with both feet. Um, But it's got to be a national effort, man. I know you're doing everything you you can do. I'm doing everything I can do. I've I've, uh, ran minority male initiative programs that are similar to rites of passage, but it's got to be done on a national scale. You know, um, we can, we can try to get the curriculum into the K through 12 schools. That'll be a battle. Um, but regardless, the work still needs to be done. And at some point we're going to have to nationalize it where, um, you know, where we can organize and, and, and mobilize people. And, and as we were talking about, uh, get our young people socialized, uh, be a wraparound services, help families, you know, uh, you were talking about fathers in the household, you know, currently we only have 30, 30% of our, uh, families have, uh, female headed households. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of work on our hands to do and, right. and I'm not so sure, uh, we're up for the task. I, I would hope we would be, but 
Um, there's a lot of work needs to be done, and it's got to be done on a national stage. It almost has to be a, it almost has to be an agenda that's created where everybody falls in line. Everybody everybody is is included. You know, man and woman up. You know, right. And I agree 100. percent so, I mean, on that note, we're not going to keep it, like I said, we're going to keep it short this week. We're going to be back to close out the year with a bang next week. I'm excited about that. Yeah, we'll be uh, talking with uh, registered nurse uh, Joy Harden. Um, she has a holistic educational uh, business where she provides um, healthy uh, lifestyle training and education, and I'm excited to, to talk with her. Um, she's got an, uh, an outstanding platform. Um that she's uh, reaching our people with, and it's specifically for our people, uh, teaching them how to eat and live and manage stress, manage through COVID, you know, mental health. She has the holistic uh, services similar to you. So it'll, it'll be a good show. Well, great. All right, man. On that note, we're going to get ready to close out. We we thank you guys for stopping in. It was some great talk and concern uh, to Armina, uh, Reach out to me and let me know what's going on with your little sister because I want to find out what's going on. I don't like the way that school is handling that, and I would actually like to advocate for your sister. If you can email me at CEO at link and give me uh, the information of the school, what's going on, and I'm going to contact you uh, sometime early next week uh, to talk about that, and we are going to put some pressure on the school uh, I'll fill Doc in on it, and we'll come up with a strategic plan of at least showing that there's some advocacy, uh, because that is absolutely unacceptable. And so uh, I look forward to hearing from you again. The email is CEO at RickWallacePhD.link. Look forward to talking to you. Uh, to everybody else, thanks. You guys have an unbelievable weekend. Doc and I are about to get out here and get to the next grind. All right. Have a good weekend, everybody.